Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about our guest today. We're going to be learning quite a bit, uh, especially of growth, because the growth that they have been experiencing is unbelievable. We're going to be talking about blank term sheets, uncapped notes, uh, tons of really, really good stuff, you know, when it comes to the fundraising side. But I think that I don't want to make you all wait any longer. So let's welcome our guest today, Subin Matthews. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. So originally born and raised in India, and also they are growing up with a single mom. So tell us about your upbringings. You know, it was fortunate. My, my family, in this case, my mom and my grandparents supported me quite a bit. And they put education in the forefront of what, everything I wanted to do. Fortunately, they were very well educated. My grandfather went to school actually in the United States, my mom in the UK. And they wanted to make sure that above anything else, I had a platform to hopefully succeed. So I was very lucky from that front. Yeah, because in, in India, there is a lot of pressure towards education. So why is that? I, you know, that's a great point. I think at the end of the day, India being a generally a third world country and obviously progressing significantly economically in the last couple of decades. But I think for overall, the, the country has always seen an opportunity to actually have education linked with overall success in someone's life. And I think that has a lot to do with the importance of education in my country. So let's talk about, you know, you as well wanting to come to the U.S. Like how did you, did you develop this desire for the U.S. based on, on what you had learned or what you had seen or getting inspired from perhaps your grandfather or your mother? You said, I want to do that too. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think there's a few things. One is the type of education that I was told that was generally in the United States was very different from, from India when it comes to college. It was a lot more hey, we'll prepare you for the real world and what comes with the real world going forward. And I think that was definitely appealing, even as a 12, 15-year-old, combined with my family, specifically my grandfather had gotten his PhD here in the United States, definitely helped with it. But look, you know, whether it's myself or some of your other people you've interviewed have always have actually used the same phrase, which is the land of opportunity. And if especially growing up in the, in the 90s, coming to school here in the 2000s, is a the United States helped, had the promise of saying, hey, if you worked hard, put your head down, got a little lucky, there's an opportunity to do really well and make your mark. And voila, here we are. So you came here on a scholarship um, to University of Chicago. 
How big of a culture shock was that for you? So I had traveled abroad, uh, including the United States before, fortunately. But look, I think the, the biggest things about going to school in Chicago was, A, this is the first time living by myself. B, as I pointed out, the education was very different. I think C, this is the hardest part. Was the cold? <laughs> That's what I was gonna what, what I was gonna tell you. I'm sure you were not used to dealing with snow and and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I mean, again, that that was a true shock to the system. Look, you you know, you've seen the movies, you've seen. Okay, you're gonna have a good time, you're gonna study, etc., etc. But no one prepares you for how cold it is on your fingertips when you step outside your dorm rooms trying to get to class. So those are always that was definitely one of my interesting parts. I mean, there's a lot more when you think about that, including how the financial system was, but that was the, the biggest shock to my system initially when I moved to the U.S. And in your case, I mean, you took a little of time off to develop this uh, little idea, Metro India. What were you doing there? Yeah, thank you for, for bringing that up. It's, it seems such a long time ago. Look, it seems like the entrepreneurial spirit in me uh, happened to have been there when I was 19 as well. So I did take time off, as you pointed out, from school or college in this case, to start a company called Metro India. It was based in India. It was, it was kind of like the old version was City Search or a timeout version of India, where we started off in Delhi, which is my hometown, which tells you what the cool restaurants are. We'll give you reviews of some bars at that time, what the, what the cool theater, theoretical events, et cetera, are, and being able to search for this in our database. At that time, again, this is 19, I'm dating myself, 1999, where you know you had less than a million people in in my city in Delhi who were on the internet. Just put things in perspective. I read 1999 was well before any social media platform ever existed, even here. So it was very early days. But you know, was fortunate enough to actually build up a team, start up that company, and over a period of about two years, actually sell that entity as well. It was uh, quite a life changing moment at that point in time from an experience. That's amazing. And what what was the uh... I mean, the, doing the whole life cycle of building, financing scale. I mean, did you guys raise any money for that or was it all fully bootstrapped? No, it was fully bootstrapped. I think what we were fortunate enough was to get early advertisers and supporters in the company. And again, so think of a company like Metro, sorry, like Timeout, right? So we were able to get advertisers even before we launched and that subsequently funded the company for the foreseeable future. And that just kept inspiring on it to get more and more ads. So it was a, a freemium platform which is supported by ads. So then let's talk about then the, the, the transaction. I mean, this is obviously the, you were talking about selling this business. I mean, to who did you sell it and, and how did that come about? Tell us about that a yeah. little bit. Yeah, I mean, we sold it right after the, the crash. Unfortunately, we were pretty close to selling it to a UK-based media company right before the crash. And at this point, I'm a 21-year-old running around. Uh, but long story short, we transitioned the team into a content-based company, a media-based company in, the, in, in India called All Content Co. So in all fairness, it was, a, it was more of an aquahar by the end of it. So in your case, I mean, you, you went back to school, and I know that, uh, that while you were there, you really uh, felt the financial stress and anxiety that uh, we are all dealing with in, in, in what is one of the richest countries, if not the richest country in the world. So... So why, 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 was, why was that so upsetting to you? So, I mean, I, I think it should be upsetting for everybody living in this country, irrespective of where they come from. Now, let me explain why. As you pointed out, the United States is, the well, even today, the wealthiest country in the world. Um, and that just happens to be a fact. 
right? We also have the largest economy in the world, which leads to being the wealthiest country. And I remember very clearly that, especially when I first got to college, this is even before I started the company, I was trying to do everything correctly, right? I was fortunate enough to be on a full tuition scholarship. My mom was sending me money from India. Remittances at that time would take a week. You wouldn't know how much you would get or exactly when you would get it. And I was working a part-time job. Despite of trying to do everything correctly, that level of financial stress that you just talked about continues to, to drive everything I was doing. I couldn't understand why I would always be a little short or a little behind my bills. And it was very clear. I was going to get money on, call it day 14, and my bills were coming up on day nine. Let's call this at the middle, you know, at some point in time. And either I would end up wanting to borrow money from my friends, and I was ashamed to do it, simply because I was, it wasn't like I was overspending, I was budgeting effectively. I was just stuck in this perpetual pay cycle of saying, hey, if you want money, you need to borrow. And the only people who give you money is an overdraft. And as we know, it's one of the reasons why we started Bridget is overdrafts are frightfully expensive. That was what was failing me in the system because I could not, I couldn't study effectively because I had so much stress and for no rhyme or reason of my own. I, one of the things that could have solved this was a credit card, but I was coming from India with no credit history and the same problem mostly exists today. And I couldn't get access to a credit card. So the circular problem that forced me to spend thousands of dollars in predatory fees, mostly overdraft fees, late payment fees, and that level of stress still lives with me today and the reason why my co-founder and I built our company. It's completely unfair for the wealthiest country in the world with these amazing banks, et cetera, put in place to help the everyday American is really not doing so. And, and as they say, you know, ideas take time to incubate. You know, in this case, you know, it was an idea that was dormant. Therefore, you, because instead of going at it, you know, you decided that banking, you know, and the whole financial service, you know, more as a nine to five employee was the way to go for you, at least at that moment. So you did a little bit of banking. Then from there, you went into M&A. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, M&A really helped you because some of the best entrepreneurs that I interview, they either were on the investor side uh, or the consulting side or on the investment banking side. So I guess having that experience on the M&A side, what did that open up for you and how do you think that has helped you as an entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, like, just a little bit of clarification, like my banking was an investment banking. So okay. it was not a nine to five job. Okay, great. You know, it was nine, nine to was one. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was nine to whatever. And I was, right. you know, I was normally, I was working in San Francisco doing software and FinTech banking, uh, investment banking, and I would leave when the traders come in. So okay, it definitely great. was, I wish it was a nine to five job. It would have made me happier. Uh, but no, the combination of doing equity deals at that time and M&A deals, but eventually working in a larger M&A role, I mean, it helps you think about how to think about it from an investor point of view and also structure your thinking in terms of what is the ROI or, the, or, or your return on time and money on any decision that you make. I think one of the things that investment banking and or M&A did was to help you put on a more decision-making framework. And also on the flip side, which I know you do a lot of deals, think about things as an investor if they were to invest in a company that you might be building. So that's a lot of uh, a lot of thought process and a lot of education on that front, from a quantitative and qualitative sense. No kidding. And here you were obviously leading a team as well, and and probably making a killing when it came to the uh, to to the salary. So I'm sure it was not an easy decision to make. You know to. Uh, to say no to everything and, and to start your own business, to start Bridget. So 
So can you tell us about, you know, how that, you know, moment incubation process, like what really led you to say, you know what, I'm going to give my notice today. What, what led to that moment? Yeah, look, it's if you spoke to my friends and my fellow, and a lot of my friends are fellow entrepreneurs. I think they knew that I had something bursting inside of me, and and there are two two things I've done in the past. One was Metro India, as you pointed out. The other one was actually built. So the investment bank I used to work at was Deutsche Bank. They were great to me, including including some of the board members there. But they gave me an opportunity to build a unique group, an investment banking group within Deutsche Bank itself. So I it, it was semi entrepreneurial because it was like here's an idea that's on a piece of paper. And I'm going to go build it. Give me a budget to go build it. So, you know, think of that as an investment committee, et cetera, and actually going executing it and growing it. So I had that thirst. I think in many ways, it probably took me too long to say, look, I've understood the banking system from the inside out. I've understood software companies and financial technology companies. Those used to be my clients. I've had this pain in my mind where this, that the same country that's touch wood paying me well and I've developed some level of savings. I want to use all that background and that pain, as you pointed out, that might have been incubating for well over a decade. Tells you how slow I am in making decisions, unfortunately. Finally, led to saying, how do we help build an enduring company that can hopefully help people at the same time? And I think that was the hardest challenge as I set forth eventually with my co-founder to do is, can you actually build a business that truly improves everyday Americans? Like, look, it's easy to be rich. Sorry, let me say that again. It's not easy to be rich. It's easy to be well looked after when you're rich, right? Banks today will give you so many extra services for free if you're in a certain income bracket or a wealth bracket. Yet, if you're the the median American, they will take advantage of you with late payment fees, ATM fees, any way they can extract value from you. So there is that fundamental difference of, of how people are treated. Long story short, sorry, they get, they get very passionate and angry about this at the same time, is let's build a product that helps the median American and be aligned to their incentives, right? So we created a financial health app called Bridget, which actually helps people budget more effectively, borrow money between paychecks so they don't have to spend money in overdrafts, build their credit scores, and actually get to a point where they can earn more as well. That same process, as we just talked about, is aligned to the history that, as you in your words, that incubation period and the problems that I was trying to solve, the problems that I and also my co-founder in his journey has suffered growing up. And how do you guys make money? What's the business model? We have an aligned business model, which is everything in the app that I just mentioned, which is helping you save. We have auto savings feature, build your credit score, uh, get money between paychecks, get the budgeting features, all of that for a flat $9.99 a month subscription fee, right? And the difference here is, unlike a bank or a traditional lender, right, people want them to borrow more, right? If you're a if you're a credit building product, you want to make sure you save as much. We've gone from the opposite approach, which is everything in the app is completely transparent, and the aligned incentives is really important. We know people don't want to borrow between paychecks. We know they want to save. We know they want to build their credit. So as they improve their own financial lives, our costs are lower, they benefit, and we benefit as well. So in this case, I mean, for you to recruit your co-founder, it took you three months. Why so long? Well, I mean, honestly, to recruit my co-founder took me well over three months. I think (laughs) the point that you're trying to make is the first time uh, a friend of mine contacted him, he said no. 
he, you know, he was like, he was not in the right, he didn't think, he wanted to make sure that he was getting in the biggest possible idea he could, and he could leverage his, his experience. Fortunately, I got, you know, I was able to tap him and talk to him three months later, and I think he was able to, uh, look, I brought him a full-on presentation, as as an investment banker obviously would, and you know a lot about that. And And the second he saw that, and he understood that his personal journey growing up in a not well-off family and seeing pain of his families, of parts of his extended family going through today and the same problems that I feel, it resonated with him. It hits right here. Combine that with his experience. He had unbelievable experience. He had worked at Palantir uh, doing cash flow underwriting in Brazil for, for one of the clients there. He worked at Two Sigma, which is one of the, the world's most quantitative and most interesting big data hedge funds. So he was able to use his personal experience combined with his ex- work experience to say, hey, this is a problem worth going after. And obviously that was uh, validated, especially with um, third-party reports on the impact that you guys have, uh, have been having. I mean, what, what kind of impact are we talking about? In the first two years of our launch, the numbers that have been published is that we've helped save our users over a quarter of a billion dollars. And 91% of our users feel less financially stressed because of using our product, which is great. That's that to me, if there's anything that I feel proud about, keeping aside the great team that I get to work with. Yeah, no kidding. Now, in your case, you know, you were very lucky when it came to um, to fundraising, which we're going to be talking about right now uh, in just a little bit. But but also in, in how you were able to nail it so fast on product market fit. I mean, we're talking about one of the greatest growth stories. I mean, not even Lemonade or Revolut or any of those. I mean, it took you about $5 million, uh, in, in, in in burned money to really get to $20 million in in annual recurring revenue. So how did that happen? A lot of luck, as you pointed out, and a lot of research. So we were able to get fortunate in, look, it comes back to the same ingredients. And, you know, you, you, know, you as an investor and VC and a, and a, a deal maker knows this is, we had a thesis. We had a very strong thesis, which said, we need to be able to help these individuals in a certain manner, right? Today, we have multiple products, but we started off with making sure we could bridge people's income gaps. So we could predict when someone needed money, put money into their bank account, or press a button and have money so they would avoid overdrafting. We didn't use FICO. We had to build technology that hadn't been built before, which is our underwriting and prediction engine only uses cash flow data, right? So we look at the information in your bank account to analyze who you are, can we send you money, when should we automatically send you money to avoid an overdraft, all you know, automatically. Going back to my core use case of when I was in college, because remember, I didn't have a FICO score or a credit score, I wasn't able to get back to it. We were able to build, with the right team, the most targeted product that we possibly could, we were able to market it in an efficient manner, but all luck and hard work, that's all it takes with the right team and over and over again and, and iterate as fast as we possibly could. The fact that we were being able to predict when people need money and pre-fund their accounts was something that really helped us push our first 100,000 reviews in the App Store and get to probably our first 5, 10 million as we were iterating fast. This is in our ERR. So let's talk about as well capitalizing the business. How much capital have you guys raised to date? 
in, in equity, we've raised a little less than $40 million. But overall, we fortunately have had access to, to credit, or, or in this case, debt financing of well over 100. Okay, got it. So debt and equity, 140. Now, in terms of the uh, equity side, I mean, I know the Series A especially was uh, quite interesting. So uh, tell us about the Series A and more importantly, getting a blanked term sheet when it comes to valuation. I mean, that's that's crazy. Yeah. So, you know, you, you talked about some numbers. So at that point, obviously, we hadn't reached, I think, at our Series A, this was in 2000 and mid 2000, well, sometime 2019, we had gotten to 10 million in, in recurring run rate again quite quickly with a very small amount of spend. And this is well less than 5 million spend. You know, that time we had raised a 2.5 million seed. Um, I think people, the investor community, specifically in San Francisco, understood the value of what we were creating, which was cash flow based, underwriting cash flow based prediction, and had found some product market fit. And look, investors like to act fast. And uh, one of the most interesting part of our fundraise ever was getting this term sheet, as you pointed out, which said, hey, fill in your numbers and let's talk. And we didn't know what to do. We thought it was a joke. It turned out not to be the, not to be a joke. And that individual is an, is not a lead investor in our company or that firm, but is a very valued investor and board advisor to us as well. So we 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 worked things out, but we didn't think that we were we were a little taken back by the blank term. And then also the um the round that you guys did last year. I mean, where where you did um a note. I mean, typically when you're thinking about convertible notes or safe notes, I mean. Whatever it is, you know, whatever that flavor is, I mean, the investor would want to have their, they're kind of like they, 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 everything covered, especially, you know, they look at the valuation gap, which establishes the ceiling so that, you know, you, you can't go over that because they're just going to convert at that cap. So, for example, if I'm raising, just for the people that are listening, if I'm raising, let's say, five million bucks at a, at a, with with a cap of valuation cap of let's say twenty million, then if I'm doing around in eighteen to twenty four months after that, where the valuation is forty, I'm converting a twenty, not forty. Uh, and then also people want to have the interest. So the interest, you know, where over the course of you know a twelve month period, they're getting a certain amount of interest on the money that they're investing. Now, in your case, you know, just to set the context and for people that are listening to to follow us here. You were able to raise a completely uncapped note with uh, with really no no interest there. I mean, how the hell do you do that? Yeah. So the, the truth of the matter is, we were fortunate in our Series A that we were well oversubscribed, and subsequently, for even our larger investor, which is Lightspeed, obviously a great shop, and Jeremy Liu, who's on the board of many companies, including a firm, is 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 on our board. Him and some of the other investors noticed something quite interesting from their point of view, which is we had pre-COVID, let's call it pre-COVID and post the start of COVID. We had, re we had reached 20 plus million in, in, in run rate very quickly, kind of showed product market, spits, product market fit, spent a little bit, not spent enough. And we had managed the pandemic in terms of how we had managed our team, managed the subscription model, and continue to help our customers without burning any money during the pandemic, or at least the initial part of the pandemic. So we had proven from an investor, from their point of view, I should say, not, not from my point, is good high growth rate, as you, you gave some great examples, including revenue, faster than revenue, pre-pandemic, and unit economics, whether it's contribution margin, payback periods, 
and or just ARR FTE ratios with still less than 50 people, exceedingly efficient numbers post that. And they wanted a larger ownership in the company. And they initially, they and some other investors initially came to us and said, hey, we're happy to, we'd love to invest. Can we do a price round? I said, no, too much work. Don't need the money. Okay, as you pointed out, can we do a cap note? Because you, the example that you gave. And I'm like, no, don't need it. Long story short, in order for them to get more ownership in the overall company, I offered them to do an uncapped note, knowing that they probably wouldn't do it. Because as you pointed out, they're exceedingly rare. We, you know, we got that done. That's amazing. And Jeremy Liu, I mean, you were, you were um, mentioning him. I mean, obviously, the investor that discovers Snapchat. I mean, we're not talking about just anybody. I mean, it's, a, it's one of the giants, one of the greats. So how do you manage to get investors like that involved with the business? Uh, look, we, we try to be as honest as we can in terms of where our heart is, in terms of what we're trying to build. We want to build a aligned business model to help people improve their finances. The people we help are the median Americans. And you know we don't do things, for example, like trying to have them overlevered, trying to get them overlevered. We are focused on making sure that 100 million Americans who live paycheck to paycheck have money so they don't spend money on, 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 on paying Jamie Dimon's billion dollar bonus, right? JP Morgan's Wells Fargo and Chase, uh, or sorry, and BOFA each make $2 billion in overdraft fees. And most of that doesn't come from you and me. It comes from this user, you know, who literally is living in the state of financial stress, who I was when I came here to college, who I was even in the beginning part of my, my career. That's who these large banks are unfortunately exploiting money from. So how do we help the median American, the heart blood of our economy, truly progress so our point of view is make sure they have money between paychecks so they don't pay late payment fees, predatory fees, or overdrafts, get to a point where they can build in some kind of savings. 40% of the country doesn't have even $400 in the savings account or access to an emergency account. Build their credit score. Because once you have a credit score, you can actually get good credit. Remember, credit's not bad. Shitty credit sucks, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. That is how we've designed our entire product. And our point of view is, how do we truly get to a point where we align incentives to the user to make them, to get them to a better So in that case, Ruben, let's say, talk about this for, for a minute. So imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Bridget is fully realized. What does that world look like? Uh, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> it, really comes, it really comes down to, if you look at two things, again, that I pointed out, our North Star is the following. And, and this is where where the world would anchor to. I really hope we can get there sometime. It's going to take a lot more than us, and that's the truth. It comes down to making sure people have money in their bank accounts and they're less financially stressed, right? So the point being is someone who should never have to open their app, and this happens to our users, before they pay, open their banking app, before they go to McDonald's and see if they have any money. Get that stress where their text message popped up Oh, you've been overdrafted. Here's your fee, right? Because the mental state that goes through someone's mind, because at that point in time, they can't make, they can't spend time with financial literacy if they're under such level of stress. They can't spend time budgeting more effectively. So in an ideal world for us, the median American, right? Which is, and a median American today only earns $45,000 a year, which is the bulk of the population, has never overdrafts or has a reason to overdraft is earning more money and never hits that level of financial stress. So instead of worrying about where their next 
money for their meal, cell phone bill, gas is coming from, they can use that time and help them understand more about financial and actually get to a point where they can sell. That is a place that I want to And that will be a beautiful world, let me tell you, Subin. Now, in, in terms of, the, of COVID, I think that COVID has definitely, you know, the last, uh, the last uh, I mean, since, since March 2020, you know, that we've been dealing with this thing. I mean, it has definitely increased the uncertainty and perhaps also the financial stress and anxiety of, of many people around the, not only around the world, but, you know, mainly here in the U.S. where you guys are, 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 are focused uh, in servicing, you know, customers. I mean, have you guys experienced a nice boost uh, from, from riding this wave to a certain degree? I mean, look, the, the, the boost that really excites us, and you know, this is the truth of the matter, is how much we can impact people, how much credit scores we can improve with our new credit building product, how much money we can save. I mean, the, the reality is the, you know, we, we're, it, the, some of our business is seasonality, which is, look, people want to improve their credit scores in January and save more because they want to get in the savings mindset. And the reality also is that they'll probably spend a little bit, they'll spend within their means, but a little bit more than they would normally in times of the holiday season. So there is seasonality that's that's up for now and, and seasonality that's up later. But look, at the end of the day, what we want to do is we want to make sure that for whoever needs the app and that we can service them. But look, we, we also have a cash flow underwriting engine, which means we can't support all people who might need income smoothing, for example. So the, the reality is there has been somewhat of a boost because of the uncertainty. But if people are requiring access for smoothing income, we can't necessarily service all of them because they might have different risk patterns. So imagine in your case, you know, I mean, incredible journey, you know, like you've had first your first, uh, you know, a, a baby. Now you're having, you know, your, your massive giant baby, you know, with Bridget, you know, a rocket ship. Uh, imagine if you had the opportunity of going back in time and having a chat with that younger Subin that was saying, at the University of Chicago studying, and you were able to give your, yourself, your younger self, one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Be patient. Be patient and continue to hire the best people you can find and treat them well. And why, why being patient? Would you say that, uh, that sometimes, you know, as entrepreneurs, we want to get stuff done and we want to achieve success very quickly? Is that it? Yeah. And sometimes we don't give it, give, give all of our decisions due process. And sometimes you might end up being able to, to drive directions or, or push people's thinking in a manner because you're giving them limited time in a way that requires a little bit more time, which yeah. is why it comes down to be patient and make sure you continue to hire the best people and make sure you treat them well. I'm right there. You know, it's when you were saying this, I mean, for me, you know, I, I, I really understood the importance of not getting there, but the journey of getting there because at the end of the day it's all about the memories that we build no it's a great way to put it yeah we're over three years old now and we've got a number of people who basically joined the company since day one and uh, we were spending time just reminiscing about this office or that dinner that we had together as a team or the other office that we had which was really small or the even smaller office where the water wasn't working um but yeah good memories good stuff so Subin. Last question that I have for you, a book that you wish you would have read sooner. Uh, it's my favorite book. It's got nothing to do with business. It's just got to do with life. Catcher in the Rye. 
it just resonates in, in a manner that makes you think of the bigger world that's out there. Also reminds me of the non-financial, non-business world that's out there as well. I love it. So, Subit, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? We're hiring. Uh, email me at any point in time at Zubin, Z-U-B-E-N, at Bridget.com. And I promise that I will respond. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show, Subin. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun, uh, especially when I was with, on the Breach app talking about uh, a lot of your stories. I think those are a hell of a lot funner than me talking about mine. So thank you so much for the time. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.